Pelotero Pickle, episode 105. We have a World Series champion. The Houston Astros took down the Phillies six, uh, in six games, four to two. Uh, pretty impressive fashion. They had a combined no-hitter and then just revealed themselves as the better team. So we are officially now into off-season hot stove. We got tons of free agents, a lot going on uh, with Pelotero. Our, our hit AI tool is really coming along. Very excited about it. Uh, we'll have a webinar later this week. We're targeting Thursday, and we're just waiting for uh, a couple other guests to get their schedules lined up. But we're going to have a, a webinar with uh, we got a, a nice little outline. We're going to explain how it works. We're going to Chris and I will be on there taking questions. Uh, we're trying to get some reps from Three Motion AI, ProPlay AI, to be on with us to answer any tech questions. And we're just going to go through the process and, and show people what this is doing. It's it's pretty amazing. I I was at a Scout Day this weekend, and then I was at uh, UTSA University of Texas San Antonio. I mean, I just I I just walked up to the fence and took videos with my phone and did 3D motion capture just with my phone, and then can process video analysis by clicking a button, and then can create custom programs by clicking a button in 10 seconds. It's pretty phenomenal what we're building, and I'm I'm very excited about it. It's some really really cool stuff. And just really excited to share it with more people. We got, you know, a lot of attention, a lot of, a lot of interest. So we're gonna just keep at it. Um, a lot of good stuff coming along. A lot of good stuff coming along. Also gonna be doing some local stuff here in the. Uh, I'm in Leander, Texas, north of Austin. So we're gonna be doing some youth assessments, doing some data capture, and developing some classes. So if you're in the north of Austin, Leander, Cedar Park, Round Rock, Liberty Hill area, look out for some stuff from us there and. Yeah, that's a good show. We're a lot of World Series talk. Jordan Alvarez, Alvarez, as Chris says, had a monster home run, kind of clinched it for him. So good episode. Off season, here we come. Check it out. Pelotero Pickle, episode 105. This is the we have a World Series Champion Edition 105. Before we get started, a reminder, send us emails to pickle at pelotero.com. Hit us up on Twitter at Pelotero Pickle. We love hearing from you. We love getting questions. We got a World Series champ. Chris, how you doing? Hi, Bob. I'm good. How are you? Yeah, there's a champion of the series that is world. Yeah. So we've got, we've got a bevy of World Series topics. Uh, First one we're going to jump into, you had a different opinion than the rest of the Twitterverse. So Lance McCullers apparently tipping his pitches in game three. Uh, there was a, there was much ado made about his leg lift, his head height, his arms, his hand height, I guess, bending of the back leg. Uh, when I looked at the video, it looked like he did that frequently. Maybe they had a tip on it if it's from the windup or the stretch or something like that. But moral of the story is Bryce, Har Bryce Harper hit a mammo and went back to the dugout and told Bohm, and then Bohm hit a mammo, and it seemed like the wheels came off a little bit. What did you have on McCullers that nobody else did, or that most people did not have? Uh, yeah, so generally speaking, the tips on pitchers, like by the time you get to the leg lift, it's probably too late. Um for a lot of guys and i think 
there there would be a lot of stress waiting to have an idea of what you're going to attack by then. And let's just call a spade a spade. You still have to hit the ball. You still have to be engaged. You still have to put good swings and execute stuff. So I don't ever put too much emphasis on pitch tipping, especially with guys that are, that are nasty when it's the secondary stuff. Now, if you look at a lot of the pitches he threw, they were the, the soft stuff was cripple locations. Uh, the heater that Bohm hit was piped. So, but the, the thing that I noticed was the glove angles um, when he was coming set. So a lot of what was on social media with the leg lift stuff uh, was wind up to stretch a lot of the comps that people were using without any consideration. So he, I went and looked back at his historical stuff and his, he generally out of the wind up has a bigger leg lift and then out of the stretch has a shorter leg lift, you know, obviously trying to hold the runners and things like that. But uh, the glove angles were pretty obvious to me when I watched the side view. And if, if you're a hitter, I think you're trying to look for something sooner than the leg lift. Um, we used to say we had Rodney because it would be based on whether his glove went first or his foot went first, but this guy never even picked his foot up. So I can't tell you how many times I looked for it. And I, I kept saying to the guys in the dugout, I'd be like, I don't see any difference. So I don't know if it's my eyes that are failing me or, uh, what it is, but the glove angles that I sent you, the pictures of the glove angles I sent you were pretty, pretty belligerent, or at least differentiating between fastball and curveball um, or slider and curveball like fastball was uh, definitely more angled the curveball was a flatter glove so if you're looking at it from a hitter perspective that's something you could notice if you if you saw the thumb of the glove pointing upward you were probably committing to something hard yeah because if you if you need to wait for leg lift you're almost infringing upon the get ready gather time it's just late if you're if you need to get going, you need to get going. You need to know a little bit sooner. I remember poor John Kelly. We used to have his finger tap. He'd tap his finger on a fastball. <laughs> it's like, all right, thanks. He's getting the sign and you're like, yeah. fastball, heater, here we go. Gear up. Made life easier because he was he was tough. Yeah. He located so well and it just gave you a better chance. It gave you a chance, I should say. Well, th- those are the scenarios where you sit there and you go, is it actually fathomable to think about being able to see something in real time when you've already like set a thought process to the next pitch that you're about to face. It's a really difficult thing to do as a hitter to sit there and say, okay, I feel pretty strongly about the fact that I can wait till he's made a delivery or halfway through delivery to then make a decision in those scenarios, you'd still be on fastball timing and then ultimately be making a decision to secondary within it. And that's, those are kind of like frantic thoughts that you wouldn't want to have as a hitter, like late real time thoughts that kind of take you off a plan that you've already created at that point. Yeah. Yeah. So Phillies won that game. They went off. They had a bunch of homers. It was exciting. It seemed like, uh, Philly was ready to erupt. They they liked it. It was a good good scenario. And then the Astros came back, won three in a row. They got the combined no-hitter. Uh, what are your thoughts on combined no-hitters? Is it different when it's the World Series versus regular season? 
I mean, what is the likelihood that we're ever going to see a, a no hitter complete game ever again in this game? It's pretty much dead, right? That's not going to happen anymore. Uh, yeah, I mean, I, until until the game fundamentally changes back uh, to you know people recognizing that uh, starting pitching can and will be good if it's good. Here's here's the big thing that I I would say about all of it, right? And this goes back to the, to the divisional series with you know Gosman and and the Blue Jays. Every team should have an ordered list of how good their pitchers are, right? You should like in some subjective world, you, you basically are saying this guy's better than this guy is better than this guy is better than this guy. And by and large, I'd probably say your number three starter or four starter, maybe four starter, isn't as good as your eighth inning guy, right? Or your seventh inning guy, whatever you want to say. But when it's one of your aces, when it's one of your one and two guys, like, and and we can go back to Pedro Martinez and Grady Little and all that stuff. The game is telling you what needs to happen. The game's always telling you the emotions of the game, the the feels, the sounds, the, 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 the moments. Wheeler hadn't given up a hit. Right. So, and I know we're referencing the no hitter now, but like that guy could have comfortably stayed out there. Javier could have stayed out there and it probably would have been fine for the longest time. You let the game speak to you, right? You let the guy go back out. And if he gets up, he gets a base runner, then you, then you could pull him. Right. The same way with Wheeler. Like I understand the matchup makes sense, but in series that are condensed, when you're facing relievers over and over and over again, you're you're building you're building your resume against them more and more. Like it's abundantly clear on the Phillies list of pitchers that Alvarado is not Zach Wheeler, right? Because it's just Zach Wheeler's better than than Alvarado. Now that's not taking anything away from Alvarado. He's a good pitcher, right? I wouldn't want to face him because he's throwing a thousand and running it, and especially in a lefty lefty situation. Alvarez has proven that he doesn't mind hitting against lefties. This is a whole jumbled mess of crap that we could all put together. Going back to the no-hitter thing, I think it's stupid to throw a combined no-hitter because it defeats the purpose of throwing a no-hitter because it's way easier to come in in a one-inning situation and not give anything up when the guys haven't seen you. It, it takes away some of the cachet of it. I really don't – Kyle Schwarber said it best, like, who gives a shit, dude? Like, dude, whatever. We lost the game. Winning the game now is the most important thing, not how many hits anybody gets. So, yeah, um, I think it's much more powerful when it's a nine inning complete game, no hitter, perfect. Definitely game. doesn't have the same story. the The pressure, the build up, the emotion, the guy sitting on the bench by himself, like throwing six scoreless innings versus having to go out there for the seventh and then sit on the bench, wait for the eighth, and go out and throw the eighth, and having to sit on the bench, wait for the ninth. The drama's not there. The buildup's not there. It's it's impressive to not give up hit a hit in nine innings. It's really awesome. Doing it on that stage is really awesome. Um, but it doesn't have the same like allure, the same appeal. It's just not it's not the same. It's one guy doing it versus four guys doing it. It's just different. To your point about Wheeler, man, it was like a Blake Snell situation again. It felt like uh the Snell at least <laughs> Snell went five, so I think Wheeler went six. So at least we had him out there a little bit longer. But again, it's like to your point, 
that there's such an emphasis now on giving relievers a clean slate. I don't. Maybe there's metrics that say you're better off letting a guy. I don't know, man. It's it's just weird because if the starter gives up a hit, you're if you if you know yes. you're going to pull him if he gives up one base runner, you might as well take him out because at that point you do would just give the guy a clean slate. This, but if you're not going to, you can take the reliever out. The situation matters. The situation matters, Bobby. Right? Like the situation matters. If you look back to the Gosman situation, Gosman had had got had loaded up the bases. It's eight to one, right? It's eight to one. Blue Jays are winning. Bases loaded, no outs. He punches out the first guy, punches out the second guy, and the dude is emotional as could be, charged. The crowd's behind him. Everything in the stadium is telling you that's the guy. Like and You can see it in his body language. Where if you look at the situation with Wheeler or Javier, right? The, Javier had no stress, like no stress whatsoever. Like it's five nothing. If this guy gives up a base runner, the reliever comes in. He feels like pretty chill about it. The Gosman situation: if you bring the reliever in with the bases loaded, and now he's going, "Oh shit, I better not spike one because that's a run." And then, God forbid, I spike one, and now all of a sudden I try to get too fine, and I'm already panicked that I gave up a run. And 8-2 feels a lot closer than 8-1. And a base hit makes it 8-4. And then all of a sudden, the guy hits a three-run whack-a-mole to make it 8-5. Like, the circumstances matter. Like, the circumstances have to matter. If Javier runs out there again and you let him try to see what happens, then it is what it is. Like, you bring in a reliever and not to mention Houston's bullpen hasn't given up a run since the fall of Berlin Wall. So, like... The circumstances matter. The circumstances have to matter. I actually don't mind him getting – I don't mind Javier getting pulled up 5 nothing in the sixth. He's at 97 pitches. At that point, it's more strategic. Like, we're going to get him out and not waste bullets there when you don't need to. And if it's about winning the World Series, because that's ultimately what it's all about, I don't have a problem taking him out of the game necessarily. It's cool to keep him in, but you don't need to. Like it's not it's not critical. I think the didn't the series get pushed around with the weather a little bit as well because it rained, so there was extra rest days built in. So you might want to get your arms thrown a little bit. There's a lot of reasons to take them out of that game, and I'm not I'm not hung up on achieving the no hitter. I think there's a lot of more older school guys that are like you leave them in the game, you give them the chance to do it because it's this like monumental achievement to throw a no hitter in the World Series. It's just rare. Was it was a holiday? Holiday was the last one to do it, I believe, for the Phillies. Um, so it's not to me. It's I not think about that wasn't the World Series though. It was a playoff. That was just playoffs. I thought that was World Series, but it's not. Yeah, it was a division. Series. Okay, for me, it's not as much about the story of throwing the, the no hitter as it is about winning the like the ultimate goal is to win the World Series. I don't, throwing no hitter is awesome. But, it's cool, but also but, like set yourself up for Game Six and Seven if needed. And I get that if you're up five nothing, it's not like completely yeah. agree with you on. If your back, if your bullpen's backed up, your bullpen's backed up. They got burnt. You need a guy to throw, you know, extend the game. Leave him out there. I, I have no problem with it. It's just there's a lot of. I think a regular season no hitter. There's no cachet. It's just it's cool. I guess it's not a big deal. Um, 
I mean, it is, it's not that it's not a big deal, but it does it. One person doing it where they have to sweat it out and the weights on one person's shoulders. I think that's way cooler than a team effort. We're just not going to see complete games because now it's like third time, to the low, third time to the order. They pull them out and it's done. I agree with everything you're saying. Um, when it, I mean, game four is the pivotal game right there, right? If if the Astros lose, not to say they can't come back and win three in a row, but I've said this before about the feeling of being down three to one versus being down two to nothing is uh, it's weird how different it feels because two nothing, it's like we haven't even gotten going yet. And I, it's ironic. I saw Gibby... Gibby is running his own podcast. Out, is he really wild? And I put out a tweet. I said it's my life's mission. To be you got to get on yeah. that show. I said you got to do the I, whole I, show I, as Gibby too. I, I and he, <laughs> yeah, he tweeted back at me and he and he said uh, you're on the list and uh, you you miss you, man. And I was excited. I'm like John Gibbons is on Twitter. He probably calls him a Twitter instead of tweets. But like, I can't wait. I want Gibby on our show. I watched him on the Red, White, and Blue Jays podcast that they, the the British guys do, uh, and he was epic. He just keeps going. He goes from one topic to the next, and it's amazing. He's got so many stories. And um, but anyway, the the, <laughs> the point of of what I was kind of trying to get at was the situation has to matter. Like the sit the situation has to matter. When your best guy is out there, the guy that gives you the best chance, you leave him out yeah, there. Yeah, because Wheeler gave you the best chance. Now you're again, emptying the tank with Wheeler, right? I mean, you have to. He's not going to pitch again either. That's what I'm like, saying. But again, being look at the circumstances, right? Like look at all the circumstances when you make the decision. The Javier one, I'll buy it. You want you need him to come back in Game Six, Game Seven, maybe if if it goes that far it like for the Astros at that point, it needed to get to game six, at least right. They were down two to one. So you pull them out you think, all right, I'm going to get them on three days, maybe even four. If we get a weather day here by game six or game seven, like you have a chance wheeler empty the tank, man. Like he's your guy. That's been your horse all year. And again, not to mention Alvarez hit lefties better than he hit righties this year, just for context. Uh, but, you know, you say you want to create the matchup and all this stuff. The circumstances have to matter. And then you trust your gut and you go with it. I really don't think the Javier situation could have gone either way and it would have been fine. Nothing would have changed. And we could say that till we're blue in the face. And guess what? You could have left Wheeler in and Alvarez could have hit a bomb too. Now, again, that being said, the way he had handled Alvarez in that game, he was riding his fastball, getting it wherever he wanted. He really looked locked in. They hit one ball hard and the ball Pena hit wasn't even hit all that hard. Anyway, you know, Maldonado talked about his strategy of getting hit. He basically Roger Dorn that at bat. He went in and tried to get hit by a pitch. He's like, go step into one Roger. And like, good for Maldonado. That was like, it's like, I don't, I don't think I can get a hit. So I'm just going to try to put my elbow into it. That's a team guy. Trying right? to win like the ball game. Baseball at its finest. Trying to win the ball game. <laughs> I will say it looked pretty bad. Yeah, I hadn't watched it live. I wasn't watching the game. Like leaned right yeah, into it. Yeah, it was bad. Call him back. Trying to win um, a ball game, and then Altuve hits the ground ball, and, but then all of a sudden you got first and third, one out, like still a ground ball away. Even if he hits a sack fly, whatever. The only thing that kills you is a three run bomb. 
right? Like a, a two-run double, you're still running around second, you're down by one. Three-run bomb, especially that kind of bomb. Alvarez. Pretty, uh, pretty profound. Alvarez. Yeah. Uh, that ball was long. Homer. I don't can, <laughs> Have you ever seen a ball go up top of the batter's Can, can we talk about this for a second? No chance. When the when the wall was further back, seeing a homer to center was like almost impossible. It was like four thirty six yeah, with the hill, the flag ball yeah, up the, the hill. hill. I need I need to talk about this stat cast crap. That ball quick. went six hundred feet. There are balls that get hit to <laughs> there are balls that get hit to center field that are like it, it like, like again to be clear, it's always further to center than it is down the lines, right? And there'll be balls that go in the second deck down like to the pull side. And they're like 472. And then a guy hits a ball into orbit the center field at like 441. And I'm like, what? Because the measurements, I think they're they're stopping the ball where it hits. Like, how about like do projected distance past the wall, like where it would have landed? And that one probably would have landed in Dallas. Right? Like that's Dallas. Dallas. It's a good Dallas is pretty Houston. far from Houston. I'm trying to pull up the uh, the estimated distance. Um, so the seventh inning. I mean that ball was. I mean I. There's no way it was only four fifty. They had it at one thirteen at at twenty seven for four fifty. That's. I mean. Yeah, there's no way it was only four fifty. That ball was. I've never seen a ball go up there, and twenty seven isn't like a like a like a high peak. It's not like it's forty. Even 35, where it's going to go up and then start to go straight down. That ball was. If anybody's was touched, anybody if, from Stackhouse. If anybody's listening, if anybody's listening that matters and can watch, can see the video of me, and we should probably use this for social. Your videos, just for just for you like know, just so you the, know, you've been frozen for the last like 10 minutes. The, so keep doing your demo, but I'll watch it later. Oh, I'll watch nice. it later. Yeah. If the. If the ball's going at the, can you see me now? I do. I need to switch my no, Wi-Fi. No, Whatever. Just keep going. The ball's going at this trajectory. It, there's no way that a ball goes over the wall by 62 feet and it only goes 40 feet past the wall. Like that. I mean, that that was a, how high? How how far over the wall was it? It'd be like hitting it over the green monster to center field. It's. I don't know if it's quite that high, but it's. I mean that. Anytime, like the camera pans up that high, and it's like, oh wait, I didn't know it was up there, kind of deal. That ball was absolutely launched in the moment. I mean, one of the bigger home runs in the history of World Series, right? It's not it, the only thing that would have made it better if it was in the ninth or the eighth. But a late, a late, a late in the game winning homer, pretty big deal. Pretty big deal. Yeah. The ball was slaughtered, and MLB Network did an overlay of the green monster in relation to that whatever ivy or whatever that stuff is. The game was over as soon as he hit it. It was over. Done. There Done. was uh, there, there are quotes like from you Booth. You can't lose the lead. There are quotes from Booth about – because uh, he does the the post game, and they were like, "Oh, who should they throw next?" He goes, "Doesn't matter. Doesn't matter. <laughs> like the game's over. There's, they're not coming back from that. They're, it's to come back from that kind of an emotional swing. I mean, it's completely possible, but it's just not. It's not no, going to happen. The only chance they would have had if they were at home. But 
it, listen, and this is why this is why the the no hitter mattered. I don't care about the no hitter, right? But the no hitter in and of itself was uh, pump the brakes, Phillies. Like you ain't it, especially after they hit right? a bunch of homers. That was the Houston's before. way. Yeah. Exactly. So, like, you want to talk about playing on emotion and the emotional pendulum swinging completely? If anybody wants to talk about momentum, which I don't even think is a real thing in baseball, but I do. It, I is, think it is within games, pitcher to pitcher. Yeah. It, within games, it is outside of the game because the game, the guy, the starting pitcher, the next day can just come shove it up your ass. Yeah, but he's got to have some uh, so, some fortitude to do that. I think it puts extra pressure on the guy. It can certainly happen, but it puts extra pressure on the pitcher if. If 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 you got okay. if you got to shut down energy, you got to get guys out and shut down energy. But keep going. So Zach Zach Wheeler theoretically should have come out and got his doors blown in because the momentum in the series had shifted, right? So the moment no hitter puts the brakes on them. Astros win Game Five in in ridiculous fashion, by the way. Well, like what a win that was! That was really impressive. Um. But theoretically, now it's over, right? Three to two. Wheeler should have given it up. Like, he pitched lights out. So he put the brakes back on the Astros. Now, again, if the Phillies had game six at home and it's the same situation, probably a different scenario where the emotion of the stadium can, can I guess, reset the Phillies and let them come back and, and from a situation going down 3-1. But the energy in that stadium just completely overmatched. I, I felt it in game six against the Royals. We were in the game the whole time. We tied the game and then we retied the game and it, it felt like we were behind the whole time. It, it just felt like we there it was like an insurmountable mountain to climb where if Jose Bautista hits a homer to tie it off Ryan Madsen in the seventh or eighth or whatever it is at, at Toronto, that place is just shaking right it's shaking as opposed to you're in kansas city and you feel it's like eerie something's gonna go crazy something's gonna go wild and then as soon as they get a base runner the the tide shifts again and it's that's where home field matters you know um it would have been impossible for philadelphia to to come back in that game or come back in that series they would have had they would have had to win in resounding fashion the only way you can win a game six is if you put it away early, you got to get up four or five runs. Like the one nothing lead wasn't enough. They needed to score in bunches early, and they didn't. They, I mean, they got one, <laughs> and then they didn't have the shutdown inning. Yeah. So, uh, let's talk quickly about the Alvarez adjustment. There's a a really cool article in Sports Illustrated about that, where Snicker, hitting coach Snicker, not manager Snicker, pulled Alvarez aside or found something. They went in the cage. I don't think it was. I think Snicker found something, but then I want to. I want to get the coach right here because that matters. There is a quote about trust uh, with Cintron. Is it Alex Cintron? I believe. That's when I get it right. I need to attribute Cintron. Cintron. I got a command. Fine. Sorry. It's actually Cintron, yeah, if you want to be yes. appropriate, if you want to, if you want to attribute properly. Yep, Alex Cintron. So 
got him there. There was a video very quickly in the dugout and Alvarez Alvarez had a iPad in the dugout and he was like doing this, like I'm falling forward type action. I think it was game four. It wasn't game five. I, I said in my tweet that I was getting the day before, but it wasn't, it was a game previous. So you've been kind of fighting it. He went crazy against the Mariners in that, that first series. And then, uh, it's been kind of scuffling since he, he struggled against the Yankees struggled was struggling against the Phillies and it's, they just got his hands higher and they were like, Oh, just give me the, the best quote was like, give me five swings. If you don't like it, we won't do it. We'll forget about it forever. And first swing felt that he's like, Oh, it's like the whole, there you are. Peter thing from Peter Pan, Patrick can splice that in when he's pushing on his face from yeah. hook. Um, there you are, Peter. It was like, there oh, you th- are, Peter. there you are, Jordan. Uh, and then he he was in his next you know the outs that he made in the game previous were good, uh, productive outs, good process outs, and then gets a pitch to handle. Smell you later. Give me a ring. Thanks so, for coming. Pretty cool. I just I, I really like the coming. part about the trust and to be able to say that to a player and for a player to to say like yes that like okay I'll give you a shot. It's openness on the part of Alvarez. It's openness on the part of the coaching staff, um, Jeremy Pena, did you see his um, MVP acceptance speech? And he was talking about like, look, we all have one goal. We're a bunch, you know, pretty eclectic group of veterans, young guys, role players, like everybody's here on the same page. I think it just speaks volumes to the organization that, you know, one of your superstars will hop in the cage searching for an answer <laughs> before game six, of the world series. It's uh, man, you never know what adjustment's going to work. You just, you just don't know. I thought it was a really cool story. I saw something saw something on Twitter. I don't know if it's true, but I'm going to report it as true anyway. That Dusty Baker's first game as a manager for the Cardinals, I think it was like 93, I think they said. Something like that. 90, in the first game as a manager. His uh, That was a diamond kinetic sensor. I'm using it as like a fidget spinner type deal. Have you heard that? Um Dusty and Dusty Baker's first lineup, his leadoff hitter was Geronimo Pena. So Jeremy's dad was in the the first game that Dusty Baker managed. The leadoff hitter's son helped win him the World Series as a manager. That's pretty wild. That's like you're a baseball guy if you're if you've been in long enough where your players' sons are helping you win World Series. That's a pretty. It's got to be amazing for the family because. For for Jeremy to be playing for Dusty after his dad played for Dusty, there's got to be some familiarity there and just some good vibes. It's got to be a good thing, I would imagine. Well, it's and it's speaks to big league pedigree, right? It speaks to growing up and having the understanding of what it means to be a big leaguer. And I mean, I'm assuming Jeremy's probably young enough that he didn't ever get to see his dad play. Uh, or like with any real relevance, even if he did. So like, let's say he was two years old when his dad was in his last year. Cause if it was when Dusty was with the Cardinals, we're talking, you know, Pena's what, 24 years old. So he's 24 now. Born yeah, in 1998. Geronimo Pena probably stopped playing in 1991. Guessing. Uh, 96. So, so in st- his, 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 in 97. So, yeah. So, um, but he moved, like, they lived in Providence. I'm pretty sure they said they moved up yeah. to Providence, went to school at Maine, 
America East guy. Yeah. Shout out America East. Just a, a, not a very traditional path. I don't remember seeing anything about him really in like, you know, Baseball America type things. Just interesting. Interesting path. I heard that the kid that was going to Maine was good. I kept hearing it. Um, and again, I remember watching his infield outfield was electric when he was at, speaks, at that game. But it's it continues to speak to big league pedigree because like when your dad has been around it and he can instill mindset stuff, like the compete stuff, the stuff that really matters, um, it, it matters. The stuff that matters matters. Put that on a shirt. Throw that on a bumper sticker. We'll put that on your business so Yogi, card. How about that? A Yogi Belloism. Yeah. No? No, it's good. Congratulations to the Astros and the Phillies. The Phillies had a great season. They were definitely – objectively, I think the Astros were the better team. The The Phillies made the better run, but the Astros were the better team. The Astros were better than everybody, dude. Yeah. yeah the Astros were – I mean, and and like – it's the weirdest thing. I, I did Toronto radio at the beginning of the postseason. They asked me who who's who who's the team to look out for, and I was like, "This is wild, but it feels like the Astros have to sneak up on everyone. Like they're the team to watch out for, but they're going to sneak up on everybody because nobody's talking about them. Everybody's talking about the Mariners got in, the Blue Jays this, the Yankees that, and the Astros were just like ho hum, hundred and ten win team, hundred and seven wins, whatever it was." And nobody was like, oh, yeah, they're going to go dominate. And now, again, you want to talk about how wild it is. You said that the, the series against the Mariners was three pitches, right? Three pitches. Like, the Mariners could have beat them. And then they won the World Series in the most resounding fashion, I think, ever, probably. Like, it, I mean. Well, I mean, it wasn't a sweep. They didn't if it was sweep a sweep, the series. Yeah. No, no, no. But they didn't lose a game before that. And then literally came in, got down two to one, and we're like, "Yeah, we're we're it, like it's weird." The series felt closer than it was, but it wasn't close. Like it wasn't a close series. It didn't. It wasn't. I think the Phillies had to play really well to win, and the Astros had to play normal to win. Just that's a different fair. mindset. That's that's a good so way the, to say it. Yeah, they're just a better team. It's uh like. Certain teams play, and one team needs to play their best game, and the other team needs to play bad for it to happen. The Astros' normal is better. They're just really good. Top to bottom, yeah, starting sure. pitching, relievers, they had the better defense. Their lineup was more steady. Um, what does this say to the Astros' legacy? So we had a, a couple years ago, we had the issue with the, uh, the sign-stealing scandal. Is, is baseball over that? It feels like nobody's talking about that at all. Other than the tipping pitches, there are a couple of people making tweets about, oh, it must be nice to know where the pitch is coming. <laughs> but what does this say about the Astros' legacy in terms of, I mean, this is sustained success. They've been doing it for a while now. They were really, really bad. New decision makers came in, and this is a systematic change that seems very sustainable. If this doesn't prove how little the sign-stealing thing mattered, then I don't know what does. Like, literally, I have no idea what does. It's just, if you're good, you're good. You just find ways to beat people. That's it. And they, like, they won games one nothing. They won games 4-3. to three, They won games 10-2. to two. They weren't bashers like they've, they've been. Like, their lineup, I don't think, was as deep. But just, it's like winning culture, man. Like, and that's why I feel like a a mutant when I say the things like this, because surface level thinking goes, Oh, well it is that like, 
it's so clear to me why they're better than everybody else. They just are. They're just better. That's it. Like, they're going to find a way to beat you. That's what it is. Stop making it bigger than that. So, in summary, Astros, good job. They got to be the team to beat next year, right? Them and the Dodgers, probably the top. Well, I that, so that's that's later in the show, but the uh, the free agency situation is intense. I saw the list of players the Dodgers released. Some names. There's, there's a lot of this offseason could be exciting. Uh, let's not get to that yet. We're going to talk about, I had a tweet from Saturday, uh, some scouting notes. These are just like thoughts. These are just general thoughts. I wasn't trying to be comprehensive whatsoever. I stated that in the tweet. But I think it's important for players, parents, I don't know, anybody. What kind of what needs to happen first to get players' attention? And the the number one, like the reason I started it was, I'm watching kids hit. I'm watching kids take ground balls. I'm watching the catchers throw. I'm like, what? what's actually going to stand out here? Because every coach, the 20 coaches that are here, they're watching 19 to 22-year-olds every single day that are way bigger, way stronger, arm strength's better, overall just balanced. Like, there's like a flimsiness to a 15-year-old that you're not going to see from a college player who's been in the weight room. Just like stability. Whenever I watch big leaguers, I'm like, they're so stable and balanced with everything they do. They're so precise with movement. And you see a 15 year old or 16 year old and they're just kind of like loose. Their bodies are just kind of like moving around. There's no precision to it. So I did, I, I had some thoughts about like, first of all, who do these coaches watch on a daily basis at their practices? Very important to know. And then beyond that, like, what is it going to take to stand out? And the first thing from a hitter side, I was just like, it just needs to be loud. Like I can, I, I should be able to have my back turned to the hitter and be like, who's that based on pure sound. These that this thing, the kids were hitting major league balls. There, there were a bunch of major league balls, but like good major league balls mixed in. If it doesn't sound right off the bat, if it's not, if it's not loud contact, I don't care what else happens. Like, I'm not going to really pay attention. I'm going to, it's like a filter. Like if it doesn't sound right, move on. If I know the kid's going to work hard, I might I might pay attention to like swing and like if he's barreling it up and it's like constant, consistent contact, it might be like a follow situation, but I'm not going to get excited unless it's loud. Just straight up. If, if not gonna you care. want, if you want to stand out in baseball, like if you want to matter to somebody that's watching you, you just have to be different, Bobby. Like you have to be different. And I, I say this to people all the time. Stop being like everybody else, right? Look around and find a way to differentiate yourself. Loud noises are a way to differentiate yourself. The way you go about your business, and it's funny, I, I was having a similar conversation the other day with a player who basically isn't playing his senior year of college, and he's telling me he wants to go at a Division three school, no less, and because he got cut. And he's telling me that he wants to go play independent ball. And I, I said... You what? I said, you can't play on your Division three college team. You think you're just going to randomly go play independent baseball? Like, I don't, I don't understand, right, the philosophy, the thought process. And it's wild that people think that they can go these routes without doing the thing that actually matters, which is playing, right, which is like playing the game. You have to differentiate yourself as an athlete somehow. If you don't make the loudest noises, 
when the game happens, somebody has to notice you. I don't care how it is. They have to notice you, whether it's because you're the in first good guy way. on the field. They have to notice you in a good way, not in a bad way. <laughs> it's not like whether it's just go out grabbing attention by like taking your shirt off and running on the field or something like that. Even if it's the way you take ground balls between innings and it's it, it resonates with somebody, your footwork's great, you 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 you're taking your your reps from the, the ground balls from the first baseman like in real game speed, uh, or even if you just look much smoother than everybody else when you do it. So those are the things that have to happen in order for you to be considered to go to the next level, right? To go to the next level and and go to the top tiers of the next level, right? Like you want to go to Texas or Florida or, or you know, a power five school. Yeah, athleticism is going to be the first and most obvious thing. The kid, uh, we get the kid up here that's pitching for Team USA U18 right now, Maverick Rizzi, right? He's 6'9". I ask people all the time, like, what makes him different? And they're like, well, he's tall. And I go, yeah, he. people notice him right away. How do you get noticed? If you're not 6'9", how do you get noticed? How do you how do So you, let's, how do let's you run through, let's, let's run through by positions. I'm going to say what I think will make you stand out, and then you can share your thoughts too. And I'm going to, I'll, I'll like, it's like a filter process. Hitters, I'm looking, I, I need to see you making impact in a meaningful way. I just need to hear it. I need to see it. It needs to be loud. What do you got? First time. Like, this is like before they play a game, these are players I'm going to end up paying more attention to in the game. Because anything like workout wise, it's, we're just trying to figure out who I want to watch closer. You can stand out in the game I'm, afterwards, I'm gonna... but I need to know who I'm going to pay attention to. I'm, I'm going to be completely honest with you. If I saw a kid come in to take BP and be and as in control of his rounds of BP from a timing and gather and get ready standpoint and be able to go line to line, like if, if a guy takes his whole first round of batting practice and you can tell that hitting the ball the opposite field is on purpose, I'm paying attention. Like if, you, if you see Was it, uh, different Pratt tempos. Was it Pratt at the, the main event? Pratt, I believe, was doing that. Was it Pratt? Who's the kid that hit the homer in the the main event? Oh, the lefty. No, the righty. Uh, the righty. The, the righty did that. Like his first four swings were sideways. I'm like, I like him. I like this guy. <laughs> I think it was Pratt. Oh, you're talking about but, the righty that hit it at uh, at, at, at Hartford. Hartford. Yeah. Yep. Yeah, yep. yeah, and he he already had the the advantage of being tall, right? So he's tall, so he stands out. So you're gonna you're gonna watch him because he's big. Um. But yeah, he he was he was very on purpose when he took batting practice. Yeah. So. All right, catchers. The more good ways you can stand out, the better you can be. Yeah. Let's do catchers. So if I'm watching catchers take their little throws to second base, first thing I'm gonna look at, I need to see arm strength. After I look at arm strength, then I'm gonna be critical about their transfers, their footwork, whatever. But I need to see arm strength before I even worry too much about that other stuff. You can look at it the other way. If the kid's super precise with his movements. Then I need to look at his arm action. Can we clean it up? Are there ways, like, do I think this kid has upside with arm strength that I can influence? But first thing I want to see is arm strength. Period. I'm going to, but I, I'm going to, I'm going to do you one better. Catchers and infielders, guys that are deliberate, that are, that are just very under control when they make their throws. So Minimal basically I call movement. it not, not playing hot potato when you take infield outfield or when you're making throws to bases. 
like not trying to throw it a thousand miles an hour. Like it has to be the same thing with bat speed. It has to be effortless bat speed. It has to be effortless arm action, not take seven crow hops and throw the ball as hard as you can, or not try to release it before you caught it. If you watch a big league guy throw between innings, most of them don't come out of the shoot at a thousand miles an hour, right? They come out of the shoot like slow as could be, but that throw is crisp. It's, it's on a line. It, it's, it's clean. It just looks clean, right? It's smooth. I guess it's swag. It's like, the slow, whatever you it's like it. when slow is smooth, smooth is fast. It can't just be slow. Like you can't, like you can't not all slow is, is not all slows transition to smooth and fast. Cause some kids are just slow. Some kids are rushed and then it ends up being slow or panicky. It's a very similar thing to me for the outfield and infield that the, the number one thing was just overall actions, how they approach the ball. It's like the way they gather, the way they're prepping their body before they even catch the ball tells me so much about what they're trying to do with their bodies. And yeah, I want to see arm, arm action infielders. I'm going to look at, at how they transfer, how they control the ball, what their slots are like, what angles are they creating? But I, it's like cadence, it's pace, it's control. Those, those, are general char- those general characteristics are all what I call big league qualities, right? It's like watching a big league guy do something and seeing how effortless it looks. The objectives of young players should be to look effortless and make things good, right? Getty used to see say, see how easy you can swing and hit it hard, right? It's, What's your like, you can't be uh, so out of control? That's one of the mo- That's like a very surface level thing to say. What would you say supports that? All right. Like what so, allows what allows that to happen? Because it's like I agree with you, but if you don't know what a big leaguer looks like, or you haven't been around, like. Go to spring training and watch, and you'll get a sense for what that is. But if you haven't done that yet, or if you're a college, high school kid that thinks they're good and they don't know what that means, what like what allows that to happen? So let me revert back to myself, right? Because we can only reference ourselves as things that we view as, uh, like we see things out of that lens. When people used to tell me when I was young that I needed to hit for more power, it automatically meant harder, faster, more, right? It, that's what it. That's how how it resonates in your head. The, the linear correlation in your brain is: if I swing harder, I'll hit it harder. I'll hit it further. I'll hit it faster. And what would happen in those situations is you'd miss hit more balls. You'd feel less in control with your body. You couldn't command where the ball was going to go up on the field. The same way when you try to run, and you know you feel like you're running fast, but really you're just running hard. And it's wild, it, it, like your arm actions, your your your, your feet—they're all out of place. They get—it it just feels weird, right? Because everything's tense, and when you're tense, it makes it more difficult to to be on target, I guess, with whatever you're, whatever you're doing. The the general feeling of going to an event where you're being scouted or evaluated is already you have two things working against you. Number one is you're looking around, right? And you're seeing scouts or college coaches or high school coaches or people that are going to be decision makers as to whether or not you're going to get a chance to play. Number two, and probably just as important, 
is you're looking around at the guy next to you and you want to be better than him and you want to do more than him and you want to stand out more than he does. So you're, you're battling like these two things that are already driving you on an emotional scale to try to be better than what you are. So when you do that, you have to recognize that when you're at in situations like that, you, you have to peel back already. Like you have to pop down and do less forgetting Sarah Marshall pop down, do less instead of do more. Well, you got to do like, more than that. You're just laying there. You're just laying there. <laughs> the, the effort and energy level that you create to, to perform at what is closest to optimal for yourself is, is obviously much less than what you think it is especially if the circumstance around you are, are dictating that you go to a, a different level of intensity already. And identifying that is just as big a part as anything we do. Yep. I like that. That's all good. I, the last thing I want to close with on that topic is I, I had a quote, wanting to play in college is the lowest prerequisite imaginable because you go to travel ball teams around the country Go to your 16U teams, your 15U teams, your 17 teams. Say, put, put them all, line them up in a row and say, who wants to play in college? They all go like this. I want to play in college. It's the weakest thing ever. It's, uh, it's to say that you want to play in college is, it's cute. It's like, great, good for you. You want to play in college. The percentage of kids that say they want to play in college compared to the number of kids who are putting in the work that demonstrates they want to play in college, it, it's way out of proportion. I would, yep. I would guess like the the raw numbers is ten uh, percent of high school players will play in college. Ten percent. So if your entire team raises their hand, then you got a problem because you have to beat all of them. You have to be better than them. You have to stand out more than them. You have to be different than them. Or how about this? You all work together, create a culture where you're going to push each other and challenge each other and and do something special. If you're not self-aware enough to recognize those things though, like what are we even doing? What are we even, why are we even bothering? You know, I, I'm not gonna, I won't let that be an excuse. Cause I think some kids just aren't aware. I think some kids need to be shown and they haven't been shown. Sure. So I, I won't, I won't let that be an excuse about self-awareness. That's fine. At a certain point, you're going to games. If you have, if you're not playing against good competition, if you're not being exposed to it, and you just don't know, at some yes, at some point, you need to be putting yourself in situations, and you need people around you that are going to help. Some but kids do slip through the cracks. Everybody has eyeballs. Everybody has eyeballs, and everybody has video themselves nowadays. If you don't look as good as the guy next to you doing it, and there's a there's a look. Believe me, if you watch baseball for five minutes, there's a look, and you could see it. Like you see it in the way guys in the show move all the time. It's if you don't have that look, keep going, keep trying next. Yeah. The social media aspect makes it tough. You should know. You should have a feel. We're going to help you with that, by the way. We're going to help you with that. Uh, One other thing I want to say on the topic was a lot of a lot gets made about bat speed. We we have a lot of conversations about bat speed and the overemphasis on it. And it's uh, I think when we when we talk about bat speed and like the at at the highest levels, like the marginal gains, like I have a hard time saying Nolan Arenado 
had a better season because of his bat speed. I just it had nothing to do with his bat speed. It doesn't I, sit. I, can, I, I just full, it doesn't sit well with me. Where like there's a and so this is like a drive line thing that they said they there was a tweet about Mookie Betts like oh imagine if he increased his bat speed by two miles per hour like okay imagine if he did you have no way to guarantee he's gonna get better he could get worse it's just doesn't sit well with me that being said get yourself around some uh, 15 16 year olds that are averaging 57 miles per hour that say I want to play in college maybe we need to focus on some bat speed uh, I'm gonna make the argument that. You need to go a level deeper. It's not just about grabbing a bat and swinging it because if you do a bat speed program when your bat speed's 57 and you don't get in the weight room, you might top out at 61 and that doesn't mean anything. Like you got to you got to get stronger. You need to your your baseline strength needs to get high enough that you can actually move the bat in a meaningful way. And if your average is 57, you're about 13 miles an hour off and you're not going to get that from a bat speed program. Yep. Not going to happen. So yep. with with the context of peak and, and maxes and everything, the one thing I want to say is like your max distance is something that you did once. Because this, I, I was thinking about this because people were saying Jordan unlocked power by scissoring because he, he clearly had a scissor move with his lower body. And No, he didn't. No. He no. didn't. He's hit. No. It's unlocking power isn't the point. Because Jordan Alvarez, Jordan Alvarez has power. He needs it to show up more consistently. The The scissor didn't unlock it. He's, I think it was 113 I said. He's hit balls harder than that. I'm pretty sure. So it's not about maxing out. It's about how do you get him to 90% of his max more consistently. 80% of his max. Because it's 80% is really good. It might go over the fence. If you 80% yep. of your max is a can of corn, a lazy fly ball to the left. If you if your max is 330, you're 80%. So you got to get your best ball. The best ball you've ever hit in your life needs to be hit to hit a homer. And you've done it once. What makes you think you're going to do it again? Resting on your max is Bobby, it's so so not smart to do. <laughs> I don't care what your it's max is. Simple. I care how frequently you hit it. People have to learn to be consistently good rather than occasionally great. That's it. And I didn't notice how I didn't say consistently mediocre. I said because like good. I love that line. Good, Another bumper sticker. We need to get like stickers if, made for all your criticisms. If good, if that's a rich Kevinism, let's be clear. If good, if good is your best, right? If good, you have to figure figure out where you are on the scale. If good is your best instead of great or elite or like superb or whatever the 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 adjectives, the superlatives there are. If good is your best compared to the rest of the world, you still got you got a place to go, right? So you have to figure out where you are, where your max is on the scale of the world, but then how to get closest to max when you perform, right? Be consistently good, not occasionally great. If you already have great in the tank, like every big leaguer does, they already have great in the tank. They got to figure out how to be consistently good. Joey Gallo has great. He's not consistently good, though. Think about that. Clip I it. need the show to end. Just that was a good one. Yeah. Uh, I just need to know uh, from a free agency standpoint, what's your who are your top free agents? I got a list here, but I want Trey Turner. That's it. Where in Boston? I don't want anybody else? 
I want. I just if I want him. If I was what does 30, that mean? I want him. I, if you if you were starting a team, you put Trey Turner on it. All right, we got Judge, Degrom, Correa, Turner, Bogarts, Verlander, Nimmo. Somebody somebody who's floating Nimmo is like getting really really paid. Is he that good? I don't feel like he's. It's just because he OPSs. He's a very right. he's he OPSs in wars, dude. But he's a very whatever player. Not that he's not going to help. There was a there was a tweet recently that said. Like Dante Bichette's year one year where he had like 38 homers was like a negative war. I don't understand how that works. Yeah. Uh, Dansby, Clayton Kershaw, Wilson Contreras, Anthony Rizzo opted out. It's uh, a good class. Chris, Chris Bassett, Edwin Diaz just signed a $100 million deal as a reliever. See how that plays out. It's a good class. There's a, there's a lot of names, a lot of big names. I'm not one of them, so that's all that matters. I am a free agent, though. Noted. Good luck with that. Thanks. Take us out. You're trying to leave. Take us out. On that note, free agency, here we come. Hot stove season, here we come. Astros World Series champions, pickle out.